Welcome to the Emmaus Fellowship Teaching Podcast. We trust you find this encouraging. Emmaus Fellowship is located at 205 North Pine Street in Woodland Park, Colorado. Our phone number is 719-687-6061. We trust you find this encouraging as you pour over God's Word with us. Voice in a song taught me how to sing. Now I have brothers and sisters, gave me a family. Um, we have been moving through the book of James. We're in James 4. I'd like to orient you there if you have a a Bible, please grab it. We, we start to get into some of the verses of James that are, are hard. They're difficult. Uh, James is one of those guys that doesn't mince words, you know. He's a straight shooter, I guess. Uh, you know he's Jesus' brother. And he wasn't actually a believer until after the resurrection. But then he became a pillar of the church Jacob was what everybody called him back then, and uh, and he it's it's assumed that his book here James is a letter written, and it was probably the first letter written by uh, a leader of the church to a group of people, and this particular audience is a group of Jewish believers that came into faith in Jesus, and then they were persecuted and they were dispersed, and so. That being what it is, it's assumed that James's letter was the first, even before the Gospels. And so um, it's, it's thought that this letter was written 40 years after Jesus ascended, and that the oral tradition of the stories and the teachings of Jesus had been going on for some time, and that James was actually compelled to write to his friends, who he knew, probably grew up with, many of them, knew their kids, watched their grandkids run around, and they were refugees. And so James is, it's got a nice, interesting blend, because on one hand, he's very tender, but, he, but he's a straight talker, and, he, and, he, and he's going to tell it like he's feeling it, you know, like he thinks it. And so there's aspects of this that kind of hit us culturally a little sideways, because uh, we're, we're used to the softer language. And yet, I think there's a, there's a real important thing to remember here, that everything about Jesus, everything about the kingdom of God, emanates from the heart of the king. And Jesus' heart for us, and Jesus' heart for these folks in the first generation church, the thing that compelled him, he made it very clear when he walked the earth, was love. And so even the hard stuff... If we remember that it's brought in and really just um, it's intended to help because of love, then we can, it's an easier pill to swallow, I guess. And, um, and I want to go ahead and read James 4, starting in verse 8. And it'll be interesting because a lot of us have tears in, my, in our eyes, right? I mean, am I the only one? Okay, so how beautiful of that to set the stage for James to tell us to go ahead and and weep, to go ahead and cry, to go ahead and feel. 
if, if we looked at this through the lens of any legalism, if we looked at this through the lens of any transactional relationship of if I, then God, God initiates. So now we get to read this with the lens of because God, now we. So James 4, 8. Make sure you cleanse your life. He even goes so far as to name it. He's like, you sinners. <laughs> like, I thought you were our friend. Okay, you're calling us names now. Actually, what he's doing is he's reminding us of the current condition of our hearts. And he goes on to say, keep your heart pure and stop doubting or being double-minded. Feel the pain of your sin. Be sorrowful. Weep. Let your joking around be turned into some mourning and let your joy be turned into some deep humility or humiliation, it would even say here. Be willing to be made low before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, this isn't the heart of what I wanted to talk about. It's actually the part of James that I wanted to skip. Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to call my friends sinners. Well, we are. You know, and if we don't think that we have sin in our lives, then we're fooling ourselves. And he's basically saying this, as, 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 as we use this, he's calling us into authenticity, to be honest, to, to acknowledge our shortcomings, our sin. And the word for sin here is an archer's term, which means to miss the mark. So let's be real with it. Let's be okay with feeling it. Let's, let's stop Basically, what he's calling us into is an emotional connection with our need for transformation. And, he's, and he's, asking, he's asking us, he's telling us really in this letter, to count the cost of what it's cost you to live outside of God's mark. He's like, let's get real. Stop pretending that it's all good when it isn't. Stop distracting yourself and connect to your real need, basically what he's saying here. So, okay, I can, I can relate to that. Um, in short, stop being arrogant and allow yourself to experience humility. Okay. So I'll ask the question, because this is, again, like an on-ramp to what I really wanted to talk about. But when he goes on in James 4, which we'll pick it up here in just a second here, of all the sins James could highlight for this first-generation church of Christians, which ones do you imagine he focused on? Now, I know some of you are looking. I'm going to read this out of James 4, 11. So think about all the list of sins and all the big ones, all the ones that bring so much conversation and so forth and all the sin management around certain types of sins. This is what James brings as uh, an example, basically, or a highlight of like, hey, if you're going to do what I'm asking you to do here, which is to cleanse yourself, in other words, to do the work of allowing the transformative power of Jesus to bring healing and wholeness to you, that's what I think when I think of him saying cleanse yourself, because honestly, we can't cleanse ourselves. Like, we need the power of Jesus. We need the redemptive work of Christ to do that. So when he's saying, hey, do the work, of allowing yourself to be cleansed, these are the ones that he's saying, like, and focus on these. Okay, here we go. Dear friends, James 4.11. 
as part of God's family, never speak against another family member. For when you slander a brother or sister, you violate God's law of love. I didn't think slander would be first on the list. It's usually not the hot button. It's usually not the one that gets a lot of like comments or blog posts or podcasts around what does the church need to be focusing on? Which big sin? Usually it's something to do with uh, like the LGBTQAI plus community or sexuality or something like that. Now, I'm not saying that these guys didn't deal with all that. They probably did. But he's saying this. When you slander a brother or sister, you violate God's law of love. This is echoing Leviticus 19.18. So don't think that this is just a New Testament thing. Like this is laid out. The law of love was laid out for the people of God. These were Jews, remember, who came into faith in Christ. They knew this. And it says this in Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there it is. It's just supported. Like don't, don't speak against people. And it goes on to say this, verse 11. And your duty is not to make yourself judge of the law of love by saying it doesn't apply to you, but your duty is to obey it. There's only, verse 12, there's only one true lawgiver and judge, the one who has the power to save and destroy. So who do you think you are to judge your neighbor? Slander and judgment. The two big ones. The two sins that James brings to the light for us is, is surrounded like judgment and slander. I probably won't get to both of them, but let's look at the word slander here. It's actually used four times in verse 11. The Greek word for it is to speak evil or to defame. To speak evil. To slander is essentially bringing an accusation against someone to another person. And it's considered speaking evil. It's interesting that of all the evil things that people can do, James wanted to highlight this. Now, who do we know to be the, quote, accuser? I'm going to read a couple things here. Satan is actually known as the accuser of the brothers in Revelation 12.10. He accuses us of our sins before God. Satan doesn't want God to extend grace or forgiveness to us, nor does he want us to receive God's grace. And Jesus said of Satan that he is a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, or it might say in your version, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when we slander, we are essentially becoming a relay station for the evil one. This doesn't mean that we don't deal with conflict between family members. We do, actually, and Jesus taught us how to do that in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Jesus says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And it goes on to talk about some different protocols if they don't listen to you. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother, but if he doesn't listen to you, then take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as, what? A Gentile and a tax collector. Now, sidebar, pause for a second. 
How does Jesus relate to Gentiles and tax collectors? With mercy, he invites them into discipleship. He even goes so far as to be their friend. He invites them to meals. Ah, did any one of you bring a sinner to Thanksgiving dinner? I mean, Jesus would have brought a prostitute to your house. Now, picture that. That would have made for an interesting Thanksgiving dinner. Why not? I mean, Jesus even treats people like tax collectors, like friends. And sinners, Gentiles, people who don't even know, who weren't raised up in this, like people who have great potential. So the first step in conflict resolution is to have a respectful conversation with the one person you have an offense with. My friend Aaron, he travels all over the globe, literally. Like, he was in Spain, he was in Norway, he was in Montreal, and he's back home now all, all this month, November. And what he does, uh, he helps Fortune 500 companies deal with conflict. And he's a kingdom guy, and he boils down the solutions to most of the conflicts to one thing. Like, the solution to most conflicts is a respectful conversation. Now, not everyone's willing to have that, <laughs> you know? So you got to deal with it, you know, next step, next step. So there are ways to deal with it, but th this is what healthy families do. They go to the person one-on-one, -on -one, and they have a respectful conversation. They start there. And then if it needs to include other people, then it needs to include other people. But it doesn't start with other people. Unhealthy family systems, members of the family tend to do what's known as triangulation. Yeah? And so triangulation happens when one or both of the people involved in a conflict try to pull a third person into the dynamic, often with the goal of deflecting some of the tension or maybe creating another conflict to take the spotlight off the original issue. Sometimes people triangulate for that reason. And oftentimes it's to reinforce their sense of rightness or superiority. So again, James is calling out this arrogance, you know? He's like, because what it does is it gives evil a foothold because we become relay stations for the enemy when we slander someone and we defame them and we bring an accusation about that person to another individual who is not involved. And that's just playing into the hand of the enemy. I mean, it's like, wow. So we remember the intended audience here. James, James's letter, again, political or religious refugees, and they're displaced and they're living in foreign lands with foreign customs and foreign cultures. And essentially, James is calling the family of Christ to humble themselves so that they can rise above the norms of dysfunction. If, if, if it's clear that if we humble ourselves and allow ourselves to be made low before the Lord, that he will exalt us, then guess what? He gives us the grace and the capacity to rise above the norms of dysfunction. How awesome is that? So, that's slander. Hey, I went through that pretty quick. So, are you okay with me talking a little bit about judgment? I'm not sure I want to. <laughs> I feel like more of the student than the scholar on this one. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? So I have a huge question for us this morning. When it comes to judge being judgy, um, can we be highly discerning without being judgmental? Let's just sit on that question for a minute. Can we be highly discerning without being judgmental? I think it gets confusing for us. I think sometimes when we're discerning, we're feeling judgmental. I think sometimes when we have conversations, those one-on-one conversations, and we bring things into the light that we're discerning, it's perceived as us being judgmental. I'm not convinced they're always one and the same. I think we can be very discerning and not be judgmental. New concept, new concept for me. Like I said, I feel like a student here. So thank you for being patient with me as I navigate through this a little bit. But let's look at Jesus' life for a few minutes, and we'll find the answer to this question about can we be highly discerning without being judgmental? Matthew 12, 24 through 25. When the Pharisees heard this, about some stuff Jesus was saying, they said, this man, Jesus, casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So basically, he's accusing, they're accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed and a Satan worshiper, and that he's casting out demons based on that. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day were slandering him. They were defaming him. And, um, and it says this in, um, in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. Any kingdom... Wait, where is it? Okay, back up. Okay, this is what it says. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them. Wow. Okay, so I'm just going to pause there and we're going to go into this. There are multiple accounts throughout the Gospels where it refers to Jesus knowing their thoughts or knowing what's in their hearts. And it informs him. And, he, and he's able to speak, not to the glaring obvious, but he's able to speak based on the discernment that he has. He can discern what's going on in their minds and in their hearts. Now, this kind of makes him out to be a mind reader. And, and so... What is it that made Jesus who he is? I mean, it wasn't, I mean, actually, it wasn't his divinity. Can I say that? Like, he actually chose to set his divinity aside. It says in Philippians 2 that we should have, we should have the attitude of Christ, who, being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself even to the point of being a servant and It goes on to talk about how God exalted him and all that kind of stuff. So Jesus relied on the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And do you realize that discernment is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And so Jesus set aside his divinity as a human being, was anointed by the Holy Spirit, just like you and I are anointed by the Holy Spirit, What that means if you're not a church person is that basically means that the essence of who Christ is, the spirit of the living God, gives you capacity beyond your physical, natural, human, soulish self. You have supernatural, beyond the physical capacities. Those are gifts that God gives to human beings. They're kind of like superpowers, right? And, um, and Jesus modeled them for us. So when we look at Jesus' life, we're not just saying, oh, he was that special guy. 
Yeah, he is a special guy. And he's so special that he modeled for us what it means to be human. So that we can attain, not of our own capacities to get it right or to, again, that transactional thing's out the window. It's like, no, the gift is the gift. It's the grace of God given to us freely so we get to receive it or not. And when we receive it, we receive it by faith, saying, I didn't earn this. I didn't do anything to deserve this. But thank you. And we get to exercise these gifts by the grace of God. And one of those gifts is discernment. And Jesus models it here where he's actually able to know their thoughts. Jesus goes so far as to confront these religious leaders in Matthew 23. By the way, I'm just going to pause there. That was actually really pretty good. Like this thing about the Holy Spirit coming on us and giving us the capacity to do things that we don't have the power to do in ourselves, that's part of the gospel message of Jesus. That's part of the reason why the gospel is so liberating to us. Because as like you were saying, Ruth, as a Hindu girl, you were trying to appease millions of angry gods that you wanted them to stay over there. Don't bother me. Don't harm me. Don't do anything that could disrupt my life to the point of kill you. And uh, Jesus is saying, no, actually, I long to be so near to you. Like, don't keep me out there. I'm standing at the door of your heart, and I'm knocking, and I'm asking for you to open that door and allow me to come in. And I'm not only going to have communion with you, I'm not only going to have like shared meals with you, and that feasting of the soul is something that speaks of a satisfaction and a fulfillment that can only come through Jesus Christ being intricately and um, yeah, in, in, integrated into who you are as a human being. And so one of the great expressions of grace is for the Lord to give you the ability to do things that you didn't earn. So here he is. Jesus is confronting these religious leaders in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. And in the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This sounds kind of judgy. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, he didn't. He didn't block these people. Fast forward to after he was crucified, buried, and raised again, and then he walked the earth for forty days and he ascended, and he says, "Okay, friends, hang out." Because the anointing of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And when it does, you're going to receive power. And you're going to be a witness to who I am. Not only in your own neighborhoods, but across the nations. And when that happened, Peter, who had just gotten like thoroughly humiliated, just a couple months prior, like six weeks before, when he denied Christ three times, and then Jesus restored him, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stood up and preached in such a way that how many people came to faith that particular day? Anybody remember? 3,000. I promise you. I, okay, I can't really promise. I imagine 
that of those 3,000, some of them were teachers of the law and Pharisees. He didn't block them out, which we'll learn later is like a definition for judging. I'll finish this one. John 2, 24, Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Again, highly discerning. And he would not let them have power over him. Um, So Jesus says he discerned their thoughts and their intentions, what was in their hearts, and he and he would not allow them to have power over him. What an amazing gift when you have the capacity to discern what's going on so that you can avoid entrapment. You can call that setting a healthy boundary. You can call that a shield of honor, like no one's going to pass this unless I give them permission. I like that. Or no one's going to get from me unless I give them permission. I like that too. So that's honor. And I think Jesus was really good at knowing people's hearts. Anyway, I'm going to keep moving here. Um, So what's the difference between discernment and judgment? We probably won't get into the meat of this. I know it's going to hang you off the cliff, but it's not going to be that. um, Oh, I'll just say it. Discernment is rightly knowing the current condition of a person or a situation, okay? And we learn from Jesus that we can be informed on how we're going to relate to people based on our discernment. Okay, we've, we've seen that. That's all good. And there are accounts of him discerning harm that they wanted to inflict on him, and he actually removed himself from their reach. All right? And as we just read out of that one in John, that um, discerning what was going on in their hearts, he decided that he wasn't going to let them have power over him. So you can, you can do some self-care with discernment. All right? We'll just leave it at that. Um, discernment... Here's something that I want to point out. We're given all these gifts from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul prays in Philippians 1, verse 9, this I pray, that your love may overflow still more and more in the real knowledge and in all discernment. So the purpose of discernment is actually to give us the capacity to love more so that you may discover the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and blameless on the day of the Lord. Um, here's the deal. Discernment has always been intended to increase your wisdom and to inform you. It's also been a way of informing your prayers. It was never intended for judgment. I think discernment works two ways. It can inform of, of someone's bad intentions, and as Paul prays there, you know, that it would help us discover what is excellent in another. So there's this other piece of it too. Discernment is not only to, you know, give us the high alert. It can bring light to the treasure that's buried inside of a person. Judgment, on the other hand, is literally writing someone off based on your limited mercy, your limited understanding of that person, your limited capacity to bring transformation and even redemption. So I'll echo James Who do you think you are to judge your neighbor? We do not have the right. We do not have the ability. We have not been given the spiritual gift of judgment. And so, let me just say this. I'll close with this. The antidote for judgment. If you feel like you're judgy, if you feel like you were raised in a culture of judgmentalism, if you feel like it's like one of your impulses to use discernment for judgment and not to inform your love and to inform your prayers, then here's the antidote for judgment. 
curiosity. Because a judge will say, no, that's the way it is. It's established. I have spoken. Gavel on the table. When we, when we exercise judgment against somebody, it's as though we know them, like fully. But what if, what if discernment was exercised and we were actually curious about who that person really is? Like what if curiosity started to dismantle our tendencies towards judgmentalism? So instead of making a rash judgment against somebody, why don't we start asking questions? I'll leave it at that. I felt like a little drop of the mic. It's like, yeah. No, I just think it's so important for us because here's the deal. We are very much like the displaced peoples that James is writing to. We're foreigners in our own land. And we're intended to rise above the cultural norms of dysfunction. We're actually intended to be light, to be different, to be like, I don't know, attractive. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Instead of repulsive. Oh, and who are the repulsive ones? You ask anybody who has a beef with the church and they'll tell you. <laughs> it's the judgmental hypocrisy that people encounter when they meet Christians. Now, so we have to get better at allowing our discernment to inform us to create a a higher capacity to love, and a more informed prayer life. But we have to be wise in how we communicate our discernment because, honestly, the filter is we're judgmental, whether we intend to be or not. And I would say that most of the people I know in this building are not. We all have issues that we are trying to sort through. That's why James brings these two to the front and center. So let's not slander. Let's not be judgmental. Instead, let's have sincere conversations that are respectful one-on-one, and let's get curious. And let's have really fun conversations that start with questions instead of statements. How about that? I'll end it. All right. I got riled up on that one. Jesus, thank you for your example to us that you can keep it real and you can call us up and out of some things that we find ourselves in and we may not even know we're in that stuff. And so your discernment is gracious like you would say the hard things for the sake of like calling us into the better things. And so thank you for the capacity to receive even now the message that you are merciful, and that you are curious. You ask a lot of questions, and you're welcoming, and you don't shut us out. You don't shut anyone out. We get to choose to enter in or not, but you don't shut us out. And so I thank you, God, that you have made it clear to us through your son, Jesus, that we can be informed by discernment, that we can let it help us grow in our love and our prayer life, but it can also protect us, and we don't have to be judgmental. It's not our place. And so thank you for that challenge, and I pray for the grace to help us exercise curiosity this week, to start a conversation with somebody that we might be tempted to write off, and to have that conversation full of open-ended, sincere questions so that we can discern the treasure 
that's in every image bearer who walks this planet. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's our joy to offer these podcasts. We sure hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, any prayer requests, feel free to drop us a line at Fellowship at iCloud.com. If you're curious about ways you can be more deeply involved in this community, visit our website at EmmausFellowship.org and be sure to like our Facebook page.